this evening is from the book of Hebrews. Again, uh, this morning we looked at Hebrews chapter 11. This evening we look at Hebrews chapter 12, page 1210 in your pure Bibles. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Amen. Watch a short video clip. And I want to prepare you for this clip uh, by telling you it's not the best quality of video that you will ever see. The picture isn't the sharpest. The sound will disappear at one point. And I want to uh, exonerate completely uh, James and Fiona. It's not their fault. It's my fault. Uh, the video clip also may make no sense whatsoever to you at this point in time. Uh, but I will refer to it uh, during the, the message. And I like it. So I'm going to have it played and then we'll reflect in Hebrews 12 together. Thank you, James. Thank you. You've probably seen that in all of its glory before. Uh, anyway, we'll pick up on that towards the end of the message. Uh, I know we're, we're 
kind of, well, we've moved really out of spring, although the weather was glorious today, we've moved out of spring into autumn. But in a sense, it feels to me like a time of new births and new beginnings. I've just finished uh, baptismal classes, so God willing, we will have some baptisms in the church relatively soon. Uh, I have three weddings in the diary, so I'm looking forward to that. Reading a new book about marriage preparation. Uh, and there is at least one baby due to be born uh, in the fellowship. There may be others I don't know of, but there's at least one. So it seems like an exciting time uh, where we are preparing for new births and new beginnings and new starts. And that's important in the life of any uh, family, including a family of faith like ours. It's good to start well, isn't it? It's good to start something with a burst of joy and enthusiasm and gratitude and excitement. Uh, Sam Allardyce, he started well. Uh, he received the almost unanimous support of the English press and the English supporters when he was appointed England manager, something that's virtually unheard of. And he lasted for 67 days and one match before there was a scandal and he had to leave. Uh, Diane James, she started well. Uh, I don't know if you saw her uh, when she was appointed leader of UKIP. She did a kind of introductory speech and she was just overflowing with joy. It was just oozing out of her as she spoke and she had this great line about not being uh, Nigel Light or even Nigel Like. It's just everything was perfect about the speech and the moment. It was such excitement as she ushered in this brave new dawn for her party for 18 days and then she stepped down as well. It's a joy to see things start well. But there's actually a deeper joy, a more profound joy in seeing things finish well and seeing people finish well. Jesus said some seed fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no roots. Other seeds fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. A promising start doesn't necessarily mean a happy ending. And that really, in many ways, is the central theme or the central warning of the book of Hebrews. We don't know much about the context of the letter, but it seems to have been written to a group of Jewish believers in Jesus and they started their journey presumably with great enthusiasm and great excitement and great joy. They had been fortunate enough to be born at a time uh, just after the coming of the Christ, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the one that God's people had been waiting all those years, all those generations to see. They must have started with such enthusiasm, with such excitement. But as time went on, it got hard. They probably never realized at the start how hard it would get, how tired they would become. The pressures from out with their church group to revert back to their old ways. 
to give up your faith in Jesus and to go back to the familiar religious rules and rites and rituals of Judaism. They would have had family members. They would have had friends. They would have had many that they grew up with, urging them just to let go of their faith in Jesus and to come back to the life that they had once known before Christ. And so the author to the Hebrews writes to urge them, to exhort them, to plead with them not to turn back, not to let go of Jesus and the blessings that they have found in him. Once their hands are on the plough, they are called to keep their eyes facing forward and to press on, to press on, to press on. Come what may. Why go back to the shadows when you have the reality? Why go back to the map when you've just arrived at the destination? Why go back to the signs that spoke of the Christ, that pointed to the Christ when you have the Christ, when you have the reality, when you have Jesus? The whole of the book of Hebrews really is like a long sermon on that passage in the Gospels where Jesus' teaching is becoming difficult and some of his followers are beginning to turn around and to walk away. He turns to his disciples and he says, what about you? Will you go too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's the message of Hebrews. No matter how hard it gets, where else can you go to receive the blessings that you have found in Jesus? Nowhere else, to no one else. So press on and finish well. So we thought this morning about Hebrews chapter 11. These Jewish believers are presented with the great hall of faith. They are four fathers in the faith these great heroes and heroines, and they are urged to remember that they haven't departed from these heroes in the faith. They, they are next in line. They are following in the footsteps of these great heroes. As they trust in Jesus, as they place their faith in the Christ, they are following in the footsteps of all those who have gone before we arrive at chapter 12, and we're greeted by the word, therefore. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we've been transported now to the sporting arena, not to uh, Clifton Hill, or not to the Tony Macaroni arena, but to the greatest of all sporting arenas, to Wembley or to Hamden or to the Emirates Arena, this huge stadium and the stands are filled with the faithful. And they're looking at us. They have ran their race, they have come to the end, and now they have passed the baton onto our hands. And the only question is, how will we run? Will we run all the way to the finish? Or will we stumble? and fall and walk away. 
In this race, you don't get a medal for finishing first, for finishing fastest. You don't get a medal for just taking part. You get a crown for coming to the finish line faithfully, for running your race with endurance or with perseverance. And there are four exhortations that I want to focus on. Four things that we need to do by His grace and the strength of His Spirit if we are to finish our race well. Firstly, we are to throw off all that hinders our progress. Throw off everything that hinders. In the first, I don't want to embarrass anyone, but in the first century, in these sporting events when people ran races, they ran naked. They had no clothes on whatsoever. It seems a bit weird to us. But there is some sense in it. You can imagine being there, you know, 2,000 years ago, and you, you're running your race against all these other athletes, and you say, well, there's no way I'm going to run this race without any clothes on. I'm getting my best first century toga, my best first century sandals, and everyone in the stands are going to see how good I look when I run. And so you're crouched down at the starting line, you have a wee look across at your opponents, And then there's a moment's silence. The suspense builds. And then you go, what is it they say? On the B of the bang, you go, you're off. And for a few seconds, you think, I'm doing really well. I'm flying. And then suddenly, your toga begins to slip round and tangle round your legs. You feel the weight and the heat. You feel slightly dehydrated. Your sandals start to cut into your feet, and before you know it, you've tripped up and fallen over, and all your opponents continue to race past you. Throw off everything that hinders. We don't have athletes running naked now, but they have tight clothes that are marketed as breathable, as if they're hardly there, they won't get in the way, they won't tie you up, they won't weigh you down, they won't keep the warmth in. They are designed with the utmost care to ensure that the runner can run without hindrance. I know in cycling as well, we had some of our members who went to see Jason Kenny and Chris Hoy recently, I'm slightly jealous. They look great, Jason Kenny and Chris Hoy look great. The professionals look great, but your average middle-aged man in Lycra does look slightly ridiculous. Why would you wear such strange attire? Well, because it cuts down on the weight and it cuts down on the wind resistance. So if you're wanting to cycle fast, that's the best form of clothing to wear. It won't get in the way, it won't uh, tie you up, it won't weigh you down. First thing that you know, proper cyclists do when they buy their bike is they take off the bell and they take off the wee reflectors and they take off all the stuff that actually they've paid to get because they want the bike to be as light and as, uh, to cut through the wind as easily as possible. The book of Hebrews says, run your Christian race, run your Christian life 
like that. Get rid of all the stuff that would hold you back or that would weigh you down. Be ruthless and be relentless in your pursuit of the goal, in your pursuit of the prize. Throw off everything that hinders, says the NIV. The King James Version says, lay down. I'll be honest and say, I don't know what the best translation of the Greek is. I don't know whether lay down or throw off is better, but I can tell you what I prefer. I prefer throw off because it's like this stuff is just rubbish now. If it doesn't help me get to my goal, if it doesn't help me win the prize that I am fully committed to, then I'm going to throw it away. I'm not going to lay it down so I can come back to it later. I'm going to just cast it away, throw it away, and press on. Reminds me of Paul. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. That's my goal. And anything which gets in the way has to be thrown to the side. Not just sin. Not just things which are in and of themselves sinful. There might be things which are okay for you but aren't okay for me. Things which are okay for me but aren't okay for you. We have to be honest with ourselves about what is a hindrance in our Christian walk. I can remember uh, being a teenager and deciding, I don't know if it was in response to a sermon I heard or something I read or a conference I'd been at, but I remember deciding I had to get rid of loads of my CDs. I was, at the time I was buying loads of music and I just felt, you know, it just wasn't helpful. It wasn't, it wasn't really bad music. It wouldn't shock you if I was to tell you the CDs that I was listening to. But just what the music was doing to me, it was just not helpful the money I was spending on it, the time I was spending on it, I just knew that it wasn't right. And so I remember going into Glasgow and taking my CDs in and, and uh, selling them for pennies, for a pittance, uh, just to get rid of them. And, you know, for some teenagers and for some of us, our music collection is fine and it's helpful and it's good. But just for me at that point in my life, it was a hindrance, it was a distraction, and I had to get rid of it. And maybe you have an equivalent. Might not be anything to do with music. It could be something totally different. Something which wouldn't shock anyone in the room. Something which is not in and of itself sinful. But you just know it's not helping you get to where you need to be. It's not helping you take that next step in your journey with Jesus. And so it has to go. It has to be laid aside. It has to be thrown off, thrown away. Some of us need to be careful with the company we keep or the television we watch or the websites we visit, either because of the time we waste or the content that we view. Everything that hinders must go for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the goal. That is the prize. That is a treasure in the field that we sell everything to obtain. What is it for you that has to go? Everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. 
Isn't that an interesting way to speak of sin? The sin that so easily entangles, it's so subtle. You know, since Genesis 3, Satan says to Eve, you will not surely die. And Satan has been whispering the same lie since then, since Genesis 3. You will not surely die. And we have to remind ourselves time and time again, sin is deadly. We can't embrace it. We can't welcome it into our lives. It will kill our spiritual verve and enthusiasm and faithfulness and fruitfulness and joy in Jesus. It will kill our capacity to keep running our race with endurance, with perseverance. So that's the second question that uh, Hebrews poses. Is there sin in our lives, sin that we need to throw away? It's easy after a while to play church. You know what to do. You know what you have to say when you come in, what you have to wear, when you have to stand, when you have to sit, what you have to say as you leave. It's easy to play church. It's easy to fool each other. After a while, uh, scarily, it's actually quite easy to fool ourselves. But we must be honest with ourselves and with God. We can't fool Him. Are there sins which we have embraced, which we have taken into our hearts and into our homes, which we need to throw away in order to run our race with perseverance? Firstly, throw off all that hinders progress. Secondly, remember that God has marked out your race for you. Sometimes life seems profoundly unfair or just deeply exhausting. Sometimes it feels like complete chaos, like no one's in control other than chance or coincidence. But we believe as Christians that God is in control, that God is sovereign, that God has marked out our race for us. And we believe that God is good, God is love, God is all-knowing, that He knows better than we know what is good and what is right and what is fitting for us. We don't get to say, I don't like this, this is too hard. I don't want this course, like again, going back to uh, the Olympics, I think it was, the cycling in Rio, some of the cyclists were saying it's just too dangerous. The, some of the corners and some of the hills, it's just too dangerous. Don't like the course. Well, God has marked out a race for us, and he chose not to consult us first. So we must then, in faith, trust that he knows what he is doing in our lives better than we do. That's what those great cloud of witnesses did. They trusted in the goodness of God even when what they saw didn't seem to make sense. They trusted in the goodness of God and they obeyed the Word of God, the voice of God. That's what Noah did, wasn't it, as we thought about this morning. Didn't seem to make any sense to spend his life building a boat there. But by faith he trusted in what God had said he obeyed and 
that decision was justified. God has laid our route before us. We won't like every twist and turn, every hill and valley, but our job is to run with perseverance the race that He has marked out for us. And how do we do that when we are tired, when there's another hill to climb, when we want to stop and walk away? We fix our eyes on Jesus. We consider Him. He is the author of our faith. He is the finisher of our faith. He is the pioneer and perfecter. He is the source and the center. He is the one who we look to and the one who we follow after. He persevered. He endured. His race was infinitely more difficult than our race. But he was found faithful to the very end. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He grieved, he wept, he knew hunger and thirst and what it was to have nowhere to lay his head. He knew rejection and betrayal from his closest friends and followers. He was despised, says Isaiah, and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Who else can say they have a God who knows what it is to suffer? In Christ, God knows what it is to suffer. He knows suffering worse than any of us have ever experienced, and yet He endured. Every member of Hebrews chapter 11 of that great hall of faith, all of them just point forward to Jesus, who lived His life in perfect faith and perfect trust and perfect obedience to His heavenly Father. He is the truly faithful one. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In the garden of Gethsemane and on the cross of Golgotha, he went further than any of us have ever had to go. And for the joy set before him, he stayed faithful. And he sat down at the right hand of God. And he lives to intercede for us. We sing man of sorrows, but we also sing Christ triumphant, ever reigning. The one who prayed for Peter prays for us. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, he said to his followers. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And after you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Which leads us into our final point. When it's tough, remember that we are not alone. We have that great cloud of witnesses. They have ran their race, and now they cheer us on from the sidelines. We ought to look to their lives and receive encouragement from how they remained faithful in their generation. We have uh, those who have gone before us. We have Jesus. We have this picture, I suppose, in, in Hebrews 
uh, chapter 12, almost of Jesus standing at the finishing line. And he does, ready to receive us, ready to embrace us, ready to welcome us home, ready to wipe every tear from our eyes, ready to usher us in to that great and glorious future that he has prepared for us. He stands in the finishing line, but he's not distant. He's not just over there somewhere. He's with us by his Holy Spirit. He never leaves us alone. He promises never to leave us nor forsake us. He is with us by his Spirit every step of the way. We have that great cloud of witnesses. We have Christ himself by his, the presence of his Holy Spirit. And we have each other. It's all in plural. Let us. It's written to the people of God. Let us. We don't run this race alone. We have each other, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why I showed that video clip of Alistair Brownlee helping his brother over the line at the end of the triathlon in Mexico. He sees his brother beyond tired, dazed and dehydrated and confused, kind of meandering across the road ahead of him, so close to the line, but he staggers to a standstill at the side of the road. And so his brother sacrifices his time to run over, to place his arm around him, and virtually to carry him to the line, to throw him across the line at the end. And I, I, when I first saw that, I found it so moving. I don't know why. Maybe because I'm a brother, one of two. Maybe it's that that makes it so moving for me. Maybe it's because it's a picture of how we ought to be as brothers and sisters in Christ. We ought to be looking out, not just at our own progress spiritually, though that's true too, we ought to be looking out for one another. When we see a brother or a sister beginning to stumble or to stagger or to waver or to tire, we ought to be there, ready with our arm around them, to encourage them, to walk with them, to lead them forward step by step. We ought to love one another like that. Our greatest joy and our highest goal must surely be to cross that line and to help one another, to help each other cross that line too, to receive the crown of life from the Lord of life who loved us and who gave himself for us. I've been thinking about the chapter after Hebrews 11, the chapter before Hebrews 11, as we come to a finish, says this, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Amen.